Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Inspire us, and that's my prayer for you, is that as we dive into the message that we're going to share together today, that this would provide inspiration and some clarity for you for the very next steps on your personal spiritual journey. And so I hope that, or I'm thankful that you're here to be a part of this with us together today. It has been incredibly hot here in North Texas for the last couple of weeks, and you have probably started to notice that our meteorologists locally are starting to make those predictions that this could be one of those summers that, you know, is like in the record books as being one of the really severe ones. They're starting to recall the severity of some of the really infamous summers around here, like 1980 and 2011, and they're comparing how everything was building up at that time, at this time of the year in those years, and saying, you know, maybe this year's going to be equally or even worse, you know, equally bad or even worse to those. And when you're outside, hot is hot, you know? I mean, like, I, I can't tell the difference yesterday between what I was feeling last summer at this time of the year, but these record keepers look back and they look at that archived data and they remind us of some seasons in our past that were particularly harsh. I mean, they look back at 2011 and they say that was the year when we broke the longstanding record for the total number of days over 100 degrees, and that was the year when the average temperature, even at night, all summer long was about five degrees warmer than usual. And like I say, you can, it's not like we can stand outside and think, well, I, you know, this feels hotter than it did last year. We don't have that kind of a specific memory of it, but I know most of us are hoping that maybe this is not going to be a new record-breaking summer. It's not gonna be the new benchmark that we compare all of our other summers to. But sometimes in life, sometimes we go through seasons and we look back on those seasons later and we ask ourselves, why did that have to be so hard? Why did that season of my life have to be so challenging? And if you were with us last week, you remember that we talked about a widely known poem that actually wrestles with that exact human dilemma, that struggle. It's a poem that you've probably heard many times before or seen posted on the wall in somebody's house or decorative someplace. It's usually known by the title, Footprints in the Sand. And if you're familiar with this poem, you'll remember the author is recalling a dream where they're walking hand in hand with God down the beach, through the sand, and as they look behind them, they can see the footprints that they have been leaving behind them as they've been walking together, but they can also kind of envision the timing of some of the things that they have experienced in their life, and they're thinking to themselves, there's only one set of footprints at the moments in my life that were the most difficult seasons. And that really kind of confuses them. And so this simple poem connects to readers really well because each one of us can remember some hard seasons in our life. Each one of us can look back on some of the moments that we've been through, some of the loneliness that we've experienced, 
some of the physical challenges that we faced or some of the heartbreak and grief that we've been through in our years. Many of us can remember some of the disappointments that happened along the way and the moments when we just weren't clear about where our story was heading or whether we were going to have what it took to take the next steps that God had in store for us. I mean, it's kind of like those of us that lived through that hot summer in 2011 here in DFW, we can remember that somewhere back there, there was a season that was just really harsh, really challenging. And we can remember seasons in our life that were unusually hard. And sometimes we look back and we make the same assumption that the poet that wrote this poem made, that, boy, it seems like I was kind of floundering by myself back then during that season. And so if you remember the poem, the, the dreamer takes this issue up with God. Says, God, why is it that at the moments when I was going through hardship and going through trial and going through moments that were painful, why is it that there was only one set of footprints back then? And the assumption, of course, was that, that was, those footprints belonged to the dreamer and that they were left to fend for themselves during the challenging seasons. And this is one of those poems that puts a nice tidy bow on everything. You know, I mean, it cleans it up and just, actually, you know, closes up the problem and all of that, and, and, and it resolves the mystery and the tension, because in the poem, God's response is, I never left you alone, I never would leave you alone during those times of your trial and suffering. There's only one set of footprints because I was carrying you. And maybe you remember the first time you read that, and honestly, for a short and simple poem, it's not bad theology. You know, I, I, I might like to poke at it a little bit and say, you know, I think I need God to carry me 100% of the time, not just at the moments when I feel like I'm at my, you know, wit's end or at my most extreme. But for a short, simple poem, I mean, it, it wraps things up pretty nicely. But this morning, I want to ask you for to, your attention to let me just play with the metaphor in this poem for a little bit. I want to stretch the footprints metaphor a little because it's, it occurs to me that for most of us, if our life's journey was captured in the footprints that we're leaving behind us in the sand, if we could look behind us and see all of the steps, all of the years, all of the days of our lives represented in those footprints, for most of us, it probably wouldn't look like a very straight line, would it? For most of us, life has been much more complicated than that. For most of us, maybe there have been some prolonged moments when we were walking side by side, hand in hand with God, and there were two sets of footprints that were moving in parallel, and we might be able to point out some seasons where we can say, boy, God was carrying me through something that was really hard, and I'm so thankful for the way that God provided. But for most of us, there were also some seasons of struggle. There were also some, some seasons when there's one set of footprints because we struck out on our own someplace and God was the one still walking there by God's self. There were some seasons in our life when we were out exploring the sand dunes or we had gone out into the deep water and there's only one set of footprints there because God and uh, we and God were not connected at that time. We got out of step. We headed in a different direction from the direction that God was going. And sometimes in our history, sometimes in our lives, we have felt disconnected from God because we decided to try something different. We decided to go our own way. And it becomes increasingly difficult 
to see the action of God in our lives, it becomes increasingly difficult to notice the presence of God in our lives when the two of us are traveling in separate directions. And every person who's ever encountered the Jesus story, everybody who's ever encountered the teachings of Jesus has had to make a decision. Is that a direction that I want to go? And this morning, I want us to take a look together. There's a single chapter in the Bible that in its entirety, it kind of captures or encapsulates the gravity of that single decision that every person has to make when they're confronted with the reality and the identity of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, you could turn it on and join me in the book of John, which is in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And John is a person who was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus is what we're holding when we look at this book. And in John chapter 6, what we find is that Jesus, early in his ministry, is revealing clues about his identity in a very powerful and public way. In the beginning of this chapter, Jesus performs this awe-inspiring miracle by multiplying five small loaves of bread and two fish to be enough food to feed over 5,000 people with food to spare. And the people who were watching this, the people who were there that day, the people who had experienced being at the very end of the line and being able to eat their fill with that, uh, that little sack lunch, these people were amazed. In fact, John chapter 6 verse 14 says that after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, after they witnessed what Jesus had done and what he was capable of, they began to say to each other, surely this is the prophet who has come into, who has come to come into the world. In fact, the very next verse goes on to say that they were so impressed, they were so amazed that the, this entire crowd of people was starting to talk about what it would take to make him their king. I mean, this is a significant political moment. There's a mass of people, a crowd of people, who are on the verge of saying, we are willing to turn our backs on the political leaders down in Jerusalem and pledge our allegiance to this teacher. Jesus is at the height of his popularity in this moment. He's at this moment of extreme influence, but John says that in that moment, in that moment of popularity and influence, Jesus did something that might have been unexpected. He withdrew from the crowds. He put some distance between himself and the crowds. He went off to be by himself. In fact, it says that he and his disciples got into a boat and escaped under cover of darkness in the hopes that maybe the crowds wouldn't be able to keep up with them, wouldn't be able to track them down, but they failed at that. The crowds did follow. The crowds did show back up, chased them to the other side of the lake. And so the very next day, all of these people and probably more that they had gathered had shown up and they were wanting to hear more from Jesus and in in particular, they were wanting to see more miracles from Jesus. In fact, almost immediately, they started asking, what are you going to do today? What cool, incredible thing to blow our minds are you going to do today? But Jesus wasn't there to impress people. Jesus wasn't there just to fill their bellies, and he wanted to call them to something different. And so Jesus took that opportunity to start teaching people. He was telling them about how the bread he had fed them the day before was not intended to just satiate their physical appetites, 
but how that bread was meant to be an introduction to Jesus's ability to satisfy their actual, real, most significant hunger. That bread was meant to be the shadow of the kind of sustenance that Jesus could offer to them. Jesus was offering, metaphorically, the bread of life that would satisfy their hungry souls. And so he started to say things like that to them. In his teaching, he said, I am the bread of life. He said, the hunger that you actually have, your most significant hunger can be filled, can be met in me. He says, I came down from heaven to do God's will. And at this point, some of the people in the crowd who were so excited yesterday about the bread and the fish are suddenly starting to ask themselves, what did he just say? And they're looking at their neighbors and they're saying, are, are you hearing the same thing I'm hearing? And they're, you know, kind of trying to clean their ear out a little bit and saying, hold on just a Did he just say he came down from heaven? And they're getting a little bit uncomfortable. Some of these people had known Jesus or Jesus' family in Nazareth for a long time. And so when he starts to say things like, I came down from heaven, that doesn't gel with their, what they feel like they've seen. And it, it bothers them a little to hear Jesus say that. But Jesus doesn't give up. In fact, he doubles down. He keeps up with the message about being the bread of life, and then it starts to get even more extreme and more metaphorical, and he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And you got to know that really started to not set right with some of the people in the crowd. They had shown up to see something incredible. They had shown up to witness something that they had never seen before, and instead, this guy seems to be kind of talking nonsense to them. John says that on hearing this teaching, many of the people who had already decided to follow Jesus started saying, this is really hard teaching. How, how can anybody accept this? Who can accept this? You can imagine them turning to their neighbor and saying, boy, I'm glad we didn't make him king yesterday. I didn't realize that this was the kind of thing he believed. I didn't realize this is the kind of thing that he would say. And Jesus is aware of these conversations that are happening, but again, he doesn't let up. He doubles down. He keeps pressing the issue. And John says in chapter 6, verse 66, he says, from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, a disciple is somebody who's already made a decision. A disciple is somebody who's already made a commitment. But John says from that time, after all of this teaching that was unsettling people, some of the people who had said, yeah, I'm going to be one of his followers, some of the people who had already made a decision to be obedient and to learn from Jesus, some of those people said, I, I didn't realize I was getting into that. I didn't realize that's where this movement was going. I didn't realize that's where this was going to lead. And so they quit following. Wherever he went the next day, they didn't bother to try to find him. They didn't bother to show up. They were finished. They loved what he was doing yesterday. They loved what he was doing on the day when he multiplied the loaves and the fish. In fact, they were so impressed in that moment that they were willing to turn their backs 
to rebel against all of their established political leaders and pledge their allegiance to this guy. But then 24 hours later, Jesus went from the moment of his greatest popularity to losing the majority of the people who had said, I'm with you. In fact, it dwindled down to a small group of people, but he hadn't lost them all. John says that some of the core group, the 12, the original group of disciples that Jesus had handpicked one by one and invited to drop everything to leave behind their prior occupations and obligations, that original group of 12 men were still there. And their minds were probably racing and they were probably trying to imagine for themselves what they were gonna do, but before they even have a chance to make a decision or make a move, Jesus puts the question in front of them and says, you don't wanna leave too, do you? As if to say, what are you gonna do? It's decision time. And at some point, I think this question that Jesus asks You don't want to leave too, do you? I think this question is a crucial question for everyone who associates with Jesus. Because the fact is that even though Jesus did come to serve humanity, and Jesus' own nature and Jesus' own love inspired Jesus to come and give his life, the fact is that Jesus doesn't take directions from anybody. Jesus doesn't take directions from the people who follow him. Jesus doesn't take directions from the people who want to benefit from his power. Jesus decides what he's going to say and where he's going to go and what he's going to do. Jesus decides what his disciples need. Jesus decides what would most benefit the world that he loves. And Jesus invites us into a journey. Jesus invites us into a relationship. Jesus invites invites us to be followers, to be disciples, but that doesn't mean that the disciples get to choose the destination. Jesus is in charge of this journey. And what we're witnessing in this text, if you look at the entirety of John chapter 6 and the movement of all the way from the huge popularity with the multitudes of people down to this dwindled little group of followers who remain, what we're seeing is that many people Many people walked away from Jesus even though they had thought they wanted to follow him, even though they had made a decision about him, even though they had made a commitment to him, even though they had walked away from some other things. Many people walked away from Jesus because in the end, he wasn't going where they wanted to go. The crowds yesterday saw an amazing opportunity They saw an opportunity to be able to get in on the ground floor with this movement that was led by a miracle-working, charismatic leader who could satisfy their hunger in any situation. I'm sure they were imagining that no matter where this movement took them, no matter what challenges were ahead, no matter what battles they had to fight, they would never have to call in reinforcements because Jesus could just provide everything that they needed. And they saw an opportunity to ride Jesus's coattails into an easier life, but none of that was Jesus's mission. And Jesus would not be deterred from his mission which is why so many people parted ways with Jesus in John chapter six. 
So many people said, I'm not gonna hand over the reins of my life to somebody that requires me to think that. Somebody who expects me to go to that destination. I'm not gonna let Jesus decide the destiny and the direction of my life. And the predicament that those people were feeling, the tight spot, the decision point that those people found themselves in, that is timeless. It's the same predicament that faces you and me. In fact, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that the single most critical decision you have to make in your spiritual life is this. Are you only interested in God's help to get where you are already going, or do you have the faith to go where God is taking you? I think this is one of those questions that everything else boils down to. This really gets to the brass tacks of what it is that you're trying to accomplish by being connected to Jesus. This is the issue that was at the heart of these people's struggle in John chapter 6. Because in the first half of the chapter, when Jesus was doing the big miracle stuff, they were like all in, all on board. This seemed like the kind of power and the kind of inspiration that they wanted to be connected to. But then when it started to make them uncomfortable, when it started to seem like it was going to go in a direction and towards a destination that they didn't choose, then they weren't so sure. And so there's this decision that everybody has to make about their own spiritual life. And the decision is, who gets to decide the destination of where this journey's going? Am I only interested in God's help to help me get where I was already planning to go? Or am I interested in what God is doing and joining God in God's plan? Are you using God as a means to the, your own ends, or are you signing up to be useful for God's purposes? This summer, we're working our way through a series of messages here at Heritage we've called Vivid, and we're talking about the decisions and the strategies and the opportunities that will allow us or help us to see what God is up to in the world. We've been talking about how to recognize God's activity in our lives and in our community and becoming familiar with God and how God interacts with creation. And it sounds obvious, but the surest way to see God at work is to look for some place that God's already working, to stick close and pay attention to what God is already doing as opposed to moving through life and carrying out your own plans and following your own dreams and hoping that you might see evidence that God is blessing that, looking around every corner and under every rock and behind every tree and hoping to see some evidence that God is joining you on your journey, the surest way to see what God's up to in the world is to stick close to what God's already doing to pay attention to the places where God is already at work. You could imagine your life a bit like a, an apprenticeship program. I mean, in an apprenticeship, you have an intern and a mentor. 
an apprentice and a leader, somebody who is being invited to watch and pay attention and imitate and stick close to what the mentor is doing. And maybe in your field of work, maybe you've had to have some kind of licensure or enough training to even be qualified to touch the equipment or to do the things that you do. There's lots of things you can learn by reading. You can learn a lot of details and technical you know, aspects of the position, but if you're wanting to perform surgery or counsel people or pilot a ship, they're not going to let you perform those procedures. They're not going to let you touch that equipment until you've apprenticed under an experienced mentor. And in the life of faith, our job, the calling that we have, is to live like Jesus. Our task, our mission is to live with the same kind of selfless, loving principles that Jesus modeled for us. And so Jesus invites us to this apprenticeship. Jesus invites us to come and learn. Jesus invites us to come and to follow him, to watch how he interacts with people, to pay attention to how he's engaging with the creation that he loves. And this is what we see Jesus do time and time again. Over and over throughout his ministry, Jesus keeps looking for people who might have enough spiritual hunger to come and join his ministry. He keeps looking for people who might have enough spiritual curiosity to walk away from what they were presently engaged with and come and be a follower of his. Jesus keeps extending this invitation saying, come and follow me. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus keeps coming to people and saying, be part of this movement. And a lot of people who heard the invitation a lot of people who were inspired by the miracles but then heard what following would require, a lot of them decided to walk away. Even though they were impressed, even though they were amazed at some of the miracles that they had seen Jesus perform, but the people who accepted the invitation, the people who said yes, the people who dropped everything, who walked away from their nets and their ledgers and their businesses and their boats, the people who said yes to Jesus' invitation, they got to see up close and personal, what God was all about. These were the people who were there on the boat when Jesus came walking across the water. The people who said yes to these invitations, they were the people who got to be sitting around that table and watch as the creator of all the universe, the one through whom everything has been made, stopped and washed their feet. The ones who said yes to the invitation, they were the ones to whom the resurrected Lord appeared in person and proved his identity and his existence. These people who said yes to the invitation, they were the ones who were in the upper room at the moment when God breathed the power of the Holy Spirit that came and lighted on them and inspired them and equipped them and empowered them to be able to have the courage to take the good news of Jesus to the furthest extents of the known world. These people who said yes got to see so much of God. They got to experience God speaking to them, leading them, speaking, talking to them through dreams, moving in their life, saving them from certain danger and death. They got to see God do so much, and it all happened because when Jesus said, follow me, they gave up their prior commitments and destinations and said, I'll go where you want to go. 
It all happened because when Jesus invited them, they said yes. Rather than expecting Jesus to join their journey, they joined Jesus on his. And this is the challenge that's still here for us today. Because even today, 2,000 years later, each of us has a decision to make. And it all boils down to that one question. Are, are we only interested in God's help to get where we thought we wanted to go? Or do we have the faith to go where God's taking us? Are we inspired enough? Are we willing enough? Are we capable of putting aside our own ambition to listen to where God wants to go? Because, see, Jesus is not recruiting fans. Jesus is not recruiting fans who will stand on the sideline and cheer and say, thank you so much for multiplying. Hey, pass some more of that fish and bread. Jesus is not looking for fans who want to use faith as just a, a side item, a side dish on their life that already has its own direction and its own plan. Jesus is recruiting followers. But the promise is this. When you decide to be a follower of Jesus, when you decide to be somebody who gives your life and its purpose and direction to Jesus, you get to see a side of God. You get to see characteristics of God. You get to see aspects of God that the fans don't get to see. And so as we begin or, or continue this conversation together this summer, the question that's there for us is, are you going to be a follower? Or are you just going to be a fair-weather fan of Jesus? Would you be one of those who when all of the rest of the crowd seems to be walking away, when all of the rest of the crowd seems to be freaked out and bothered by what Jesus is calling them to do, would you be one of those people who says, you're the only way. Jesus, you're the only way for me. Where else would I go? Would you be somebody who's committed to be a follower?